This is Archive Atlanta, episode 45, Eastlake and Bobby Jones. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week we have a story about wealth and leisure, amateurs and professionals, and how a popular game in the South came about and the iconic place it was played. It will come as no surprise to loyal listeners, but I'm not a huge sports fan. When I moved South, the college football obsession seemed odd to me. And to be honest, 13 years later, I still don't quite understand. But maybe it's not something to be understood. As a student of history, though, I can see the connections between sports and social movements, especially baseball, how it distracted people from suffering through war, deadly epidemics, or just hard times. From the beginning of time, humans have needed ways to numb out. And today we do that with technology, especially our cell phones. But a century ago in America, much of that was through sports. The playing of early sports, however, was mainly relegated to the wealthy. Because as we've learned, it is usually they that have the time to dedicate to leisure activities. Modern sports developed in the 1800s, mostly in America and the United Kingdom. Sports culture was an upper and middle class male thing, usually found at private schools and universities. Like I said earlier, poor people were busy working, working six days a week and usually taking one day as a Sabbath. As professional sports became a thing, the first players were quote-unquote regular people and were initially not getting paid. But as the popularity increases, the idea of paying a person just to perform their sport becomes more and more normal. And there's a whole bunch of fascinating history here regarding how amateurs felt about paid professionals Being an amateur in a sport was seen as a quote-unquote pure thing, the influence of money being the corrupting factor and creating players that are just concerned with profit and then not performing at their peak level. And of course, there's always a little more to the story. So for the upper class, the idea of paid sports professionals was threatening because it gave a chance for poor working class people to compete amongst them. If you haven't yet listened to episode 23 about the Atlanta Crackers, I do cover some early sports history for both white and black Atlantans, but today we're going to spend the majority of the time talking about golf, the poster child sport for wealthy white southern men. I don't think anyone doesn't default to that image when you think of early golfing. I've mentioned a few men's social clubs throughout my episodes. In Atlanta, the oldest and most prominent clubs were comprised of white men as they had the means and the time to create those organizations. The oldest in the South actually started in Atlanta in 1883. Capital City Club is a who's who of mayors, governors, and Atlanta businessmen. The Piedmont Driving Club came later in 1887, and I mentioned in the Piedmont Park episode, it started as a place for these men to race their new cars, a luxury that few people could own. In this period of the late 1800s, the entire U.S. and Atlanta was experiencing the growth in interest in sports. So although these men had social clubs in the city, there were none that existed to solely promote athletics. Burton Smith was the younger brother of Hoke Smith, the gubernatorial candidate mentioned in the race riot episode. Burton was a prominent attorney, a civic leader in Atlanta. He was a mason, president of the State Bar Association, and vice president of the American Bar Association. He was in the National Guard, and he was actually stationed during the 1906 race riot, which his brother had a large hand in creating. I found that pretty ironic. 
1888, he married the daughter of John B. Gordon, who is currently enshrined with an equestrian statue at the state capitol downtown. It was Burton who pitched the idea of combining a social club with athletics, and he told all his friends about it. 65 friends to be exact. And in 1898, these 65 men formed the Atlanta Athletic Club. Initiation fees were $25, and the annual dues totaled $24. And I bet that current members wish that was still the case. Smith became the first president, and the first building was at the base of the original Equitable Building. Joel Hurt owned the building and also happened to be an AAC member, so it worked out pretty well. The group then purchased a property at 37 Auburn Avenue. It, of course, had no golf course where it was in a downtown city, but the group was small. Four years later, though, membership grows to over 700 men. Eastlake itself was a popular vacation spot for Atlanta's wealthy families. Originally, the land was all a plantation owned by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Alston. Fun fact, the 1856-1860 Alston home is still there, and it's considered one of the oldest structures we have left in the city. Even more fun fact is that Robert Alston was killed in a duel at the state capitol over his opposition to the convict leasing system. Can we say mini-episode, which is in the works right now? After the colonel's death in 1879, his family would begin subdividing the land that he owned. Just five years later, his widow passed, and the children sell the estate and the land to James Helmer. Helmer is chiefly responsible for the creation of the Eastlake neighborhood. So he takes his new land, which he paid $9,000 for, divides it into house-sized lots, and then sells it to the Eastlake Land Company. This company is chartered by two well-known Atlanta architects, Alexander Bruce and Thomas Morgan. Bruce and Morgan then lay out some streets, a park, and a lake, and they sell those lots again to Atlantans looking to move out of the city. This has been a common theme in many episodes, but to get people away from the city proper in an age before automobiles, you had to provide public transportation. As the streetcar reached Eastlake in 1893, the boom in population ensued. Many Atlantans would buy small cottages where they would spend the summer outside of the polluted hot city. The Atlanta Athletic Club begins scouting for land to build a country club around 1902, and it helps that one of their members, Henry Atkinson, owns a few hundred acres. By 1904, the country club is open for business. And what may surprise most people is that it did not start off as a golf club. Golf had not really hit its peak of popularity, and things like lawn bowling, whatever that is, uh, tennis, boating, and wading were all the craze. Building a golf course at the club was pitched by the second president, George Washington Adair. In my research, I found that the origins of golf are pretty fascinating. So it comes from a Roman game called Paganica, and the word golf actually comes from the Dutch word for club, which is kolf, with a K. The Dutch word for hole is putt. In case you need some random fact to wow at a cocktail party, you're welcome. Americans in the early colonies actually shunned golf as it was thought of as a frivolous game of rich Europeans. It would not be played regularly in America until the 1800s, and the very first golf club was in Savannah, Georgia, right around that time, but it disbanded by 1812. So back to the Atlanta Athletic Club. They hire Tom Bednalo to design the course. 
He was from Scotland, arrived in Atlanta in 1905, and his nickname was, quote, Johnny Appleseed of Golf Courses, end quote. And that was well-earned. He designed over 600 golf courses in his 35-year career. Now, the actual building of the course was left to Fred Pickering. So he um, and Tom made a team. Tom came, made the design, and usually left town before Fred even started building. The club hired golf pro Alex Smith before the course even opened. They wanted to be ready for that opening day, and that would come in 1906. At this grand opening event, there was a man named R.P. Jones and his five-year-old son. The patriarch of the family, Robert Tyre Jones, was born in Covington in 1849. He moved to Canton, Georgia as an adult, and there he operated a general store and a textile mill. He became one of the wealthiest men in town. He was devout, pious, no-nonsense, very, very, very religious, and very stern. Which is why it's funny that his first son, Robert Prometheus Jones, would turn out nothing like him. Born in 1879, R.P. was gregarious, drank, danced, and even told adult jokes. He was a lawyer by trade, and in 1900, he marries Clara Thomas from Alabama. Their first son, William, was born just a year later, but he was weak and frail and only lived three months. Now, just a few months after that, Clara was pregnant again and unarguably pretty worried. She was convinced that Atlanta was a safer place to give birth. It was closer to major medical facilities. It was a bigger city. If something went wrong, there was more help. R.P. agreed to move his law practice to the city, and then when they arrived in Atlanta for a short time, they stayed with their friends, the Grants. So the Grant Mansion is one that I talked about in episode four, but what many people do not know is that in 1902, Robert, or Bobby Jones, was born in the back bedroom. Young Bobby Jones and his parents would spend almost every summer renting rooms at a house over in Eastlake. Five-year-old Bobby was introduced to the game by fellow renter Fulton Colville, Now, Bobby's father was already a very active member of the club. He would even serve as president in the 1930s. Um, But the young Bobby didn't immediately take to golf. He was usually swimming, playing tennis, playing baseball. But by 1908, everyone said that there was not a day he could not be found on the course. And most people agree that the game seemed to come naturally to him. Maybe today we would call him prodigy. In 1911, he wins the club's junior championship. And four years later, he's winning other local and regional tournaments. 1917 is when his career takes a national stage, and he starts to be called the Dixie Wonder. Jones's career is long. There's a lot to share, but I will be as brief as I can, yet still placate the golf fanatics. The first seven years of his career were a rough patch, so to speak, so he never won a major tournament. But the seven years after that were led by dominance in every tournament he played. This period of greatness capped off in 1930 when he won the Grand Slam. That means winning the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Open, the British Amateur, and the British Open. And he's the only amateur to ever do this to this day. But by that time, he had been married for six years, he had two kids, and he managed to graduate from Georgia Tech, Harvard, and take classes at Emory, and pass the bar exam. After these great achievements, he focused on creating the Augusta National Golf Course and his annual tournament, the Masters. Even I, in my little golf knowledge, know about the Masters. In summary, Bobby Jones is known for his sportsmanship, honesty, and just being a good guy. When I learned about the way that our culture revered amateurs in his time, it only helps to further explain the understanding of why people are so in love with him. 
He ended up having a long and successful law career. Sadly, in 1948, he was diagnosed with a rare spinal disorder. He would play his last round of golf, where he played his first, the Atlanta Athletic Club Eastlake. Eventually, he walked with braces and then soon after was relegated to a wheelchair. He handled his illness with grace and continued to work as long as he could, passing away in 1971. Throughout his life, he would see a paved road go from Ponce de Leon to the gates of Eastlake Country Club, and in 1916, a real school was built for the neighborhood children. By 1928, the city of Atlanta annexed the area, and it was no longer a faraway getaway for Atlantans. It was Atlanta. Over his time playing golf at Eastlake, the course would be redesigned and expanded twice. He would play there with other Eastlake figures. Charles Yates was younger than Bobby and raised in a home on the fourth green. In the 1930s, he was one of the most well-known amateur golfers in the country, just like Bobby. He went to Boys High, shout out episode 14, and Georgia Tech, and he eventually became an international golf sensation. Bobby's childhood golfing partner was Alexa Sterling Frazier, older than Bobby, older than Jones, and dubbed the Empress of Golf. She won her first title at Eastlake at age 12, and at 18, almost 19, she won the first of her three U.S. Women's Amateur Championships. Bobby Jones even lived to see the Atlanta Athletic Club move from city proper in 1966 when it sold to Eastlake land and its downtown holdings to move to the Burbs. It's still there today in what is now Johns Creek. The neighborhood of Eastlake dealt with white flight in the 1960s and then became one of the most dangerous parts of the city in the 1970s. The story of its renewal and revitalization could possibly be its own episode, but the course was restored in 1994 and the Schutz Design Clubhouse was brought back to the original 1926 design and condition. Tour Championship has been played there since 2005. The clubhouse is usually open to the public once a year for Phoenix Flies, uh, the tour That tour is limited, requires reservations, and it books super fast. So if you want to do that, make sure you mark your calendars for about March next year. So there you have it, the story of sports, golf, the Atlanta Athletic Club, Eastlake, and Bobby Jones, all in under 20 minutes. Each of these topics have tons of information, and if they interest you, I found at least four papers on Jones alone that were so fascinating. He is, of course, buried at Oakland Cemetery. His grave is probably the most visited, and it is littered with golf balls at any given moment. If you have photos of Eastlake or Bobby Jones's gravesite, share them with me by using hashtag ArchiveAtlanta. I'd love to see them. If you're enjoying the podcast on iTunes, remember to leave a rating or a review. The new mini-episodes are being released this weekend for all patrons, so hurry up. Go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Archive Atlanta, and that'll give you some more details about how you can get two bonus episodes every month for just $1. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.